0: Well, they want my microphone, so we're going to need a minute here. Let's see. All right. Hey, Dave, would you clip me on? Now you get to see up front what happens behind the scenes. All right. Yeah, buddy, we good now? There we go. All right, thank you. Sorry about that, everybody. Let's have prayer. We need it. God, we just come before you, and thank you, God, for that. Even in our humanness, uh, when things go wrong, God, that you're still here and that you love us. And I thank you so much, God, that we have the opportunity to come and we get to study your word together today. God, we thank you for the book that is the Bible and that you speak into our lives about what you want us to see and what you want us to do. So, God, I pray that you'll help us to see your word for us today, God, and give us the heart to go and do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here today. My name is Pastor Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Alliance Church. I want you to take a look at a painting that we're going to put up on the screen this morning. According to a man named Ned Landau, this painting always freaked him out. In its actual size, it's only 12 inches by 10 inches, and it hung on the dining room wall in the house he grew up in in New Jersey with his parents and with his two brothers, Roger and Stephen. When his mom, Mrs. Landau, passed away in 2010, the Landau boys did what children do. They came and cleaned out their mom's house. Now, they had a garage sale to get rid of most of the items, but there were were a few things they didn't want to just get rid of, a few pieces of silver and a couple paintings, including this creepy one. So the plan that they had was to hire an auction company to auction off the items that might be a little bit more valuable, but the brothers, they weren't really in any kind of a hurry. So for four years, all the items from their parents' house that they wanted to auction off sat in boxes in Roger Landau, one of the brothers' basement, under a ping-pong table, including in one of those boxes this creepy painting. When they finally hired a company, one of the representatives from the company told them, look, you might get a few thousand dollars for the pieces of silver and maybe a couple hundred bucks for the painting. So as you can imagine, the brothers' expectations were pretty low. In fact, they were so low that when the day of the auction finally arrived, they didn't even show up for the auction. However, when the creepy painting came up for bid, the story took an unexpected twist. Because all of a sudden, via telephone, a Frenchman and a German man were in a bidding war for this painting. The bidding started at 250 but it quickly went to 1000 then 10000 Then $100,000. When the Frenchman said $450,000, the German man said, keep on bidding. Well, finally, the French person won the auction, and only then did the German man tell the auction company what was going on. He said, what you have there is an original Rembrandt painting. It's called Sense of Smell, and it's part of a lost series of paintings that he did over 400 years ago. I've been looking for this painting my entire professional career. Well, as you can imagine, the auction company was in a hurry to let Roger Landau know, but he wasn't in a hurry to call them back. It took him several days to return their calls. But when he did, he found out that the creepy painting that had been under his ping pong table for four years sold for $1.1 million. I, I love stories like these. And every time I hear a story like this, maybe maybe I'm like you, like, I start to ask a whole bunch of questions. Questions like, what was this normal family from New Jersey doing with a Rembrandt painting in their house? Or, who in their right mind pays $1.1 million for a 12 by 10 painting? Like, the math on that is like $10,000 per square inch. Or maybe you've already moved past questions about this painting because you're making a mental list of all the creepy stuff that your parents have in their house. <laughs> Trust me, after the first service, a lot of people came up with tell me the creepy stuff that's in their parents' house. The biggest question that I always think whenever I hear a story like this is what if that happened to me? What if I was browsing an antique store or cleaning out a relative's house and I found something of such life-changing value? This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 together. Matthew chapter 13. So if, you're, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and pull it out. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. We're also going to put the scripture on the screen. And I did want to mention in your bulletin this morning, there are some sermon notes on a salmon. That is a color salmon piece of paper. And in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at two side-by-side stories that Jesus tells. And what fascinates me the most about these stories here that Jesus is going to share with us is that even though he told them 2,000 years ago to people who lived on the other side of the world from us, he still manages to tap into the very same part of our humanity that draws us to stories like this painting. And in this story, you're going to see that Jesus says that we also can discover something of such life-changing value that when we find it, Everything else in our life that we value becomes worthless in comparison to it. Let's read together in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The two stories we've just read here, told by Jesus, are to teach the same idea. Did you know that in the Bible, repetition or saying the same thing twice in a slightly different way is a technique that's used to emphasize importance. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across two similar stories like this, or two similar verses, it's the writer's way of saying to you, no, no, seriously, just stop for a second. This is really important. I don't want you to miss it. And so in looking at these two stories, you probably picked up on a few of the similarities. In both stories, a person finds something of great value. The person sells everything they have, and the person buys that thing of great value. There's another similarity here, though, that we've got to grasp if we're going to understand the story. And in, in both of them, the thing of great value is compared to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. We're not going to get anywhere this morning unless we start to understand what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. The phrase the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is used 85 times in what we call the Gospels. Those are the books of Matthew, Mark. Luke, and John, 85 times. That's an average of one time per chapter in the books that are the most important for us to understand Jesus's life on earth and his message. So we're not going to understand what Jesus is talking about if we don't understand the kingdom of heaven. So what is it? Well, even though we don't live in a monarchy government, we're smart enough to figure out what a kingdom is, right? It's pretty simple. We can say that a kingdom is a land and a people Ruled by a king. A land and a people ruled by a king. So if you think of the Bible, maybe you think of the kingdom of Israel. The land was the area east of the Mediterranean Sea possessed by Israel. Men like David and Solomon were the kings, and the people were called the Israelites. In more modern times, you can think of the kingdom of England. The island in the northeast Atlantic is the land. Kings like Henry and George are the kings, and the people are the English. Or maybe the most famous kingdom to us in 2018 America is Disney's magical kingdom. But the definition will still apply. The property owned by Disney in Orlando is the land. I guess the king would be Mickey Mouse. And the people are definitely folks that like to stand in long lines in hot weather and spend all of their money. So, when the Bible talks about kingdoms, what Jesus wants us to realize is that everyone lives in a kingdom. Everyone lives in a kingdom. Everyone here, you and I, we identify with a homeland, we belong to a people, and we obey a king. We identify with a homeland, we belong to a people, and we obey a king. But the Bible isn't talking about man-made kings like kingdoms like England or France. Instead, it's talking about really two kingdoms, either the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is saying you live in one or the other, and they both have a land, a people, and a king. In the kingdom of the world, the land is temporary. The view in the kingdom of the world is that this physical earth and this physical life is all that there is. The human existence is limited to what we experience between birth and death. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die, and then it will all be over. But in the kingdom of heaven, the land is permanent. In the kingdom of heaven, the view of the physical earth is that it will one day be destroyed. But for us, that's okay because we take Jesus at his word in John chapter 14, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, so that even now, for those in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is preparing a permanent residence for us to dwell with him forever. And so even in this physical land, our bodies age and give out on us, and disease brings suffering, and those we care about pass away, and even one day you and I will pass away. We know That one day we will have new bodies, and there will be no grief and no sadness, and we will dwell with Jesus forever in that permanent land called heaven. In the kingdom of the world, in the kingdom of heaven, there's also a people. In the kingdom of the world, the people are condemned. In the kingdom of the world, people search for meaning in all kinds of places. And yet they're left feeling empty inside. Even when they catch what they're chasing. Hence, they're left condemned to live lives here in this earth that fall far short of the abundant life that God has designed them for. The people of the world are also condemned in the next life because they never deal with the evil that's in their very nature. Instead, what the people of the world do is they're very creative and persistent in developing more convenient definitions of good and evil. Definitions of good and evil that better fit their culture or their circumstances or better fit just what they want to do. In the kingdom of heaven, people are forgiven. You see, you got to understand, the kingdom of heaven, people aren't any less evil than the people in the kingdom of the world. The difference is they've recognized it. And more importantly, they've recognized that there's nothing that they can do about it and instead have turned to the only one who can and have asked Jesus Christ for his forgiveness. So for the people in the kingdom of heaven, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is true, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Finally, Finally, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven both have a king. In the kingdom of the world, the king is an imposter. Despite the people's best efforts in the kingdom of the world to convince themselves that they rule their lives, reality is that the people follow many different kings the king of pleasure, the king of power, the king of possessions, the king of popularity. And yet, none of these kings can ultimately be satisfied because behind them stands one ultimate false king Satan himself. In fact, Satan is so powerfully persuasive in convincing people that he is the true king, he has even tried it on Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 4, look at this verse quickly with me. Luke is telling the account of when Satan tempted Jesus. And he writes that the devil led him, him being Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, because it has been given to me. But in the kingdom of heaven, it is known that even though Satan may rule as an imposter king for now, he won't reign forever. Because there's one true, genuine king. Revelations chapter 11, verse 15 tells us that in heaven, loud voices said, the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And in the kingdom of heaven, there's one true king with true authority and true power, and that's Jesus Christ. And even though in this kingdom of the world, we might fall into chaos with dictators, with nuclear buttons, and militant groups inflicting terror, and kids going to school and shooting each other, and all the chaos and the mess that we look at, the craziness around us, we can know that for those in the kingdom of heaven, we have one king who will one day come and restore all order and redeem the craziness and reverse the mess that is in this world. And the Bible's telling us, you live in one kingdom or the other. It's an either-or. Either you're in the kingdom of heaven or you're in the kingdom of the world. But Jesus wants us to see the value in the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying when you recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven, when you recognize that this is what the heaven represents versus what the world represents, can't you see that even though you have a choice, it's really no choice at all? There's only one choice that makes any sense because when you recognize the value of what the kingdom of heaven is, Choosing the kingdom of heaven or choosing a relationship with Jesus isn't the choice that makes more sense. It isn't the sensible choice. It's the only choice that makes any sense. The kingdom of heaven, friends, isn't the sensible choice. It's the only choice that makes any sense at all. So Jesus might be saying to us, like, why are you treating, treating what I've given you like you're at the drive-thru at Wendy's, and you've selected your value meal, but you can't pick your side, and you're like, do I go with the french fries that I really want, or you know, the salad's more sensible, and what do I do? He's saying it's not a choice at all. You're sitting in the middle of a ship that is sinking in shark-infested waters, and fortunately there is a lifeboat with a seat left in it. Are you getting in or out? Jesus wants us to recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven, and that's why he can say that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds it, he hides it again, and then not in his sadness, but in his joy, he sells all he has and buys it. And he says again, "Look, look, when you find the forgiveness and the hope and the future that is in my kingdom, then that is with me, it's like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds one of great value, he sells everything he has, To buy it. And so, when you're confronted with the value, the immenseless treasure that is the kingdom of heaven, and you have the opportunity to acquire it, what do you do? Well, according to Jesus, you do whatever you have to, whatever it costs, whatever it takes. Let me explain it like this a few years ago, I had to fly to Atlanta to do a memorial service. So when I travel on a plane, usually I go for comfort over style, and I wear blue jeans or sweatpants. But in order to do the funeral service, I had to wear a suit that day, and I didn't want it to get wrinkled in my carry-on, so I decided I was gonna wear it on the plane. I had booked the flight last minute. Usually people don't die in advance, so you can plan things out. So it was last minute, and you've been there. You've gotten on planes. It's, like, crowded, and everybody's behind you, and you panic a little bit because all these people are impatient, and you're trying to get your stuff in the overhead. And so I'm, like, sliding in my seat, trying to hurry up. And what I didn't realize was that suit pants stick out differently than jean pants do. And so I'm trying to hurry, and I sit down into my seat, and all of a sudden, all I hear is rip, rip the armrest was sticking out, and it caught my pant pocket, and it tore the side seam of my suit that I had to do a funeral in in the next day. So suddenly, I like had this huge problem, and I'm not trying to be graphic, but just to kind of give you a, don't draw a picture, but the guy beside me like knows now, am I a boxer or a brief guy? Like, it was that bad. So you know how Pastor Keith was talking about the merry-go-round of worry last week? Like, I hopped on and gave it a good old spin. Like, what in the world am I going to do? Like, I have this problem, and so the whole way to Atlanta, I'm trying to make a plan. When we get there, and I, I get up, i got holding my pants together with one hand, and I'm getting my stuff, and I head off to the airport convenience store. You know, like, they have those places that sell a little bit of everything. And I'm scouring the aisles, and thank God, there it was, hanging on a hook, one of those travel needle and threads. I walked up, I was like, thank you, Jesus. And I pull it off and I turn it around and I wasn't so thankful or so holy. $13, $13, like, ugh! But do you know what I did? I made up a dance move that no one's ever seen before to keep my pants together and held to my stuff and get the needle and thread and get my wallet out as fast as I could because I was so thankful that they had what I desperately needed that all of a sudden I didn't care what it cost. And Jesus is saying that in Matthew chapter 13, that when you find what Jesus wants for you and has for you and can give to you, that you're so thankful that you found what you so desperately needed that you didn't care, you don't care what it costs. So what does the kingdom of heaven cost? What is the price of salvation and forgiveness and a life in Christ. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and saying, how many times at Community Lions Church have I heard that salvation is a free gift? Isn't the price free? It is. But what we have to realize is that there's a difference between what the kingdom of heaven costs and what it costs you. There's a difference between what the kingdom of heaven costs and what it costs you. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 13 again. And this time, I want to read verse 44. Like, Jesus is the man, and we are the treasure in the field. And I want you to watch what happens. Matthew writes, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, or in other words, when Jesus found us, what condition were we in? Weren't we buried in sin? Weren't we covered in the dirt of our guilt and of our shame? Weren't we in a situation that we could not pull ourselves out of with our own effort? And yet Jesus sees us dirty and buried and says, you have value. You're a treasure to me. And what did he do? In the story, Matthew writes, and Jesus says, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had. What did Jesus give up for us? He gave up his place in heaven and came as a human being to the earth with a mission to save us. His mission led him to a cross where he suffered unimaginable physical pain, where he gave up his life, and where he took upon himself all the guilt and all the shame of our sin. It cost Jesus everything. The price that he paid was all he had. And with it, he bought that field. He bought us. He paid the price for our sin. And he bought our freedom and our place in the kingdom of heaven. And he did it so that we can be like the man who finds treasure in the field and the merchant who finds a pearl of great value. And we can come and we can recognize what we could have in Christ. And we can say, that's the most valuable thing that anyone could ever have. It's the only choice that makes any sense. And we could say, I want that. Only to realize that no matter what we do, no matter what price we pay, no matter how good we are, it will never be good enough to acquire it for ourselves. And so we can turn to Christ and we can say, I want it, but I can't afford it. And Jesus turns to us and says, you're right, you can't afford it, but I can. And you can never pay enough, but I already have. And so with the price that Jesus paid, with his payment, we can have forgiveness, a relationship with him, and a place in the kingdom of heaven. So today you have a choice. We are all born into the kingdom of the world, but we don't have to stay there. Because you don't get to choose in which kingdom you start, but you do get to choose in which kingdom you finish. You don't get to choose in which kingdom you start but you do get to choose in which kingdom you finish. Maybe you're like the man who found the treasure. You haven't been really looking for relationship with Christ or forgiveness or his kingdom, but today you're confronted with it. Will you be like the man who found the treasure and act decisively? You might be worried about whether your friends or your family won't understand your decision. They might not. Or you're thinking, you know what, there's some things in my lifestyle that if I do this, I'm going to have to give up. You probably will, but it is worth it. Do not delay. Don't hesitate. Today's the best day to choose to follow Christ. Or maybe you're like the merchant, and you've been searching and searching for truth and searching for meaning and purpose. And today your search has brought you to this church, to this message, to this story from Jesus. Please don't think that that is by accident. Can't you hear Jesus saying to you, my son, my daughter, I am the one that you've been searching for. You have found me. Today your search can be over and your new life in Christ can begin. Because you don't get to choose in which kingdom you start. But today you can choose in which kingdom you finish. In a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to make that choice. But before we do, I want to talk to those of us here for a few minutes who would say, I have already decided to follow Jesus with my life. If that's you, then I believe that Jesus is saying to you and to I through this passage that if you have recognized the value of following Jesus... Are you living like it is worth it? This passage is asking you, are you living like it is worth it? Let me explain it like this. Have you ever thought how important electricity is to your life? I mean, think about it. What would you do if you didn't have electricity? For myself, I would go home to a house that probably would not be warm because I would not be able to heat it the way I do. In the summertime, I wouldn't have air conditioning to come into from the hot outdoors. I wouldn't reach into my refrigerator and grab a cold drink or reach into my freezer and grab ice for ice water. I love my electronics, but in a few days they would be dead even though they have batteries because I wouldn't be able to charge them. No Netflix, no internet, no cable. When was the last time in the middle of the night you had to go to the restroom and you needed to light a candle in order to find your way there? When I think about it, electricity is probably the single most valuable day-to-day resource that I have in my life. And so in light of how important and how valuable electricity is to me, what do you think my response is when every month I get one of these little gems in the mail from West Penn Power? I will give you a hint. It is not, thank you so much, I'm just so glad that I have electricity, I don't care what you charge me, it's that important to me. I'm just like you. I cringe and I look at the balance because I'm hoping it's low, because I want to have used all the electricity that I wanted while having to pay as little as possible for it. I want all the advantages that electricity brings to my life while having to sacrifice as little as possible to get it. Now, real quick disclaimer on behalf of all of us, if you work for the power company, this is an example, not a recommendation, so... And I use this example for this reason because I think that sometimes in my life, I treat what I have in Jesus Christ like I treat my electricity bill. And I hate the fact that I will say how valuable my relationship is with Jesus. Yet at times, I have to confess to you and confess to him that I treat it like I want it to cost me as little as possible. How about in your life? Are you living like with a whatever-it-costs attitude? Or are you living with an as little-as-it-can-cost attitude? Are you living and saying to Jesus, I know how much you gave up for me. Therefore, I want to follow you no matter what it costs. Or are you living and saying to him through your life and through your actions that I'll follow you as long as it doesn't cost me very much. I will follow you as long as it doesn't interfere with my life very much. What would your life look like if you followed Jesus and you lived like it was worth it? College students, high school students, what would living like it is worth it look like when even though you're studying for engineering or for business, you feel like God's calling you into full-time ministry? Or parents, what would living like it's worth it look like in your life when your, your child comes home from a youth group event and tells you that God's calling them to go to overseas missions? Singles. What would living like it is worth it look like in who you choose to date and how your dating relationships look? Or engaged couples, what would it look like in how you approach your upcoming marriage? Men. What impact would it have on your wives and on your children, if every day at home, not in the aisles of the church, but at home, they saw you living like your relationship with Christ was the most valuable thing in your life? What about in your finances and in your time? Probably the two biggest indicators in our lives of what's important to us. If someone looked at how you use your money and your minutes, what would that say? about what's most important in your life. It cost Jesus everything he had to give to us a relationship with him and a place in his kingdom. And he's calling us to follow him with everything that we have. As I was thinking about how to tie everything together today, I began to think about what in my life do I have that's valuable to me? Now, I'm not a very sentimental guy, and I don't have a lot of stuff that's very expensive. I have my share of stuff, but not a lot of it costs a lot of money. But there's one thing in my life that I would say is more valuable to me than anything else, and that is my deer rifle. So I brought it with me because I want to talk to you about why it's valuable to me. So this is my deer rifle. It is a Model 70 Winchester. It is not a pre-64. It's a 270 caliber, and it was given to me by my dad. This is the deer rifle that my dad used to kill his first buck the same year that I was born. And then when I was 13 years old, my dad and I spent the whole summer hunting groundhogs with this gun so that I could learn how to shoot. That November, we took this gun out on the first day of deer season, and my dad was with me when I shot my first buck with this gun. Then, every year after that, until I graduated high school, my dad and I hunted together with this rifle on the first day of deer season. Who knows? I might give this to one of my sons one day. I probably will. I have no idea what this rifle is worth. It's probably not worth very much because if you examined it, you would see all the nicks and scratches that come with being carried through the woods and bumped up against trees and drugged through briars. But the truth is, I really don't care what it's worth because there's no way I'm selling it. Because the value of this gun has nothing to do with the dollars that it's worth or what I could sell it for. The value of this gun to me is the relationship that it represents. It represents my relationship with my dad, because every time I look at this gun, I know that most of my great memories with my dad, this gun was there with us. Similarly, in these passages we've looked at today, if you remember one thing from today, remember this. Jesus isn't telling us about the value of monetary things, about a treasure or about a pearl. He's teaching us about the value of a relationship. A relationship with him. And he's saying to us, look, it's one thing to recognize the value of something, But it's another thing to act accordingly. He's saying, In your life, have you acted upon the value of the relationship that He makes available with Him? And He's challenging us to let nothing stand in our way and let nothing be more valuable to you than your relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, Jesus's challenge to us and my challenge to you is have you accepted that relationship with him? Have you turned to him and said, I am like that treasure stuck in that field. I can't dig myself out. I have sinned in my life. I've made a mess. I'm covered in my shame and my guilt. Will you buy me with your forgiveness and the price that you paid for me? Or maybe you're here today and you say, look, you know, I, I've followed Christ with my life, but I'm not living like it's worth it. In fact, if you have spent any time with me or looked at my life very long, there's a lot of things that I would say my actions show are worth more to me than my relationship with Jesus. In a moment, we're gonna give you the opportunity to change that moment we're going to give the opportunity to respond to what Jesus might be saying to you in your life today. Pastor Dave is going to lead us in singing just the first verse and the chorus of a song called, Oh Come to the Altar. And if you're here today and you want to make the decision to follow Jesus with your life, to receive the forgiveness that he can give you and start a new life in him, I invite you to come forward to the front when we start singing one of our pastors, one of our elders would be glad. We would love to pray with you and help walk you through that decision. Or if you're here today and you say, I'm not living like it's worth it, but I want to change that. And I want someone to pray with me. I also invite you to come forward when we start to sing. After we sing a verse and a chorus, Pastor Dave is going to close us in prayer. And then if you're in your seat, you're welcome to leave. You're dismissed. We ask that you would just have conversation out in the lobby instead of in here. So now I invite you to stand with us as we begin to sing. If you want to give your life to Christ today, or if you want to deal with something in your life that's holding you back from following Jesus like it's worth it, I invite you to come now.